0: Hey, everybody, what's up? Welcome to the ASCA podcast. This podcast is proudly brought to you by AlphaFit, the largest Australian made and owned provider of high performance equipment for strength and conditioning. Hey, guys, welcome back to the ASCA podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Coyne, and this is episode 103. Now, before I introduce the guest for this episode, quickly got to go over the 2023 ASCA conference with you. On the Gold Coast, November 2nd to 4th, JW Merritt. There's going to be all the latest and greatest SNC and sports science research from Australia and around the world. Heap of opportunities for networking with fellow SNC coaches and the presenters this year are first class. So please, pop strengthconditioning.org into your browser and check it out for more information. Got to mention our podcast sponsor too, AlphaFit. They're the largest Australian-made and owned high-performance equipment partner to the strength and conditioning community. They offer a wide range of high-quality SNC equipment, all designed and engineered to help you and your athletes perform at their best. So AlphaFit's expert consultation team can also work with you to understand your requirements and develop the perfect solution that's fit for your purpose. Make sure you visit alphafit.com.au forward slash ASCA. Now, guest for this episode is Dr. Sarah Herbert. Dr. Herbert has a PhD in sport and exercise science from James Cook University and is an ASCA associate level 2 coach. She specializes in strength conditioning for team sports, injury prevention and rehabilitation and has a keen interest in advocating for S&C in the wider community, from adolescents all the way through to older adults. Following the completion of her PhD, Sarah co-founded Foundations Performance and Rehab up in Brisbane with the aim of creating a safe and welcoming environment for athletes and the wider community to undertake SNC and and rehabilitation services. Currently, Sarah is also a lecturer at the University of Southern Queensland. Now this podcast was a bit different from the usual ones we do and in this episode with Sarah we chat all things business from starting a private facility to business models, cash flow projections, bringing on more staff and or business partners and much more. We also touch on Sarah's PhD research on soccer or football and if you have at all been thinking of going into private s or opening a strength conditioning facility or you might already be in the space and want to know more or see how other people are doing it, this is right up your alley. Regardless though, This was a super interesting discussion, and there are a lot of lessons we can all take from Sarah's advice.
1: All right, team, we're back on the ACA podcast. I've got Dr. Sarah Herbert uh, on the line. Sarah, thanks for coming on board.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: It's great to have you on. It's great to have you on. Um, And Sarah, we've got to start at the... At the start got to start at the beginning, and we get a little backstory from everybody that's been on this podcast. Can you tell us sort of obviously, you've done a PhD, you've um, worked private SNC, you're working at a university as well. Tell us what's uh, what sort of got you started, how and why did it all begin, and then bring us up to the point of what you're doing now and, and uh, fill us all in?
2: Yeah, <laughs> so I think my journey started much like I don't know, nearly every SNC coaches, I guess, in that I loved sport as a kid and I did every sport under the sun kind of growing up and when I kind of got to picking I think it was grade 11 and 12 subjects I was like oh I'm obviously going to go to university because I was I guess quite academic at school Um, and then I was like well well, what am I going to study and I was like well I like sport and I like being active so something to do with that and I looked up you know degrees and sport science was there and it was based at um, JCU in Cairns where I was And so it just kind of was a natural fit. Uh, And then, so once I kind of did my degree, it wasn't until probably third year in placement when I actually probably started thinking, I guess, about where I wanted to kind of go, because majority of people who were doing my degree were going to go into exercise physiology. And, you know, although I loved a lot of rehab stuff, working with more chronic population type stuff wasn't really what I was interested in. And I ended up doing a placement at the AIS um, in third year. And it was really cool because it was, I guess, I think it might have been just before the 2012 London Olympics. And so I was really lucky that I got to work with a lot of really good coaches down there and I guess get thrown in the deep end a bit with um, elite athletes and what they were doing. And I guess I was 21, I think at the time, and it was kind of light shining and lots of exciting things happening. Um, And I was like, yep, I'm going to be a strength coach. This is what I want to do. So I guess from there I had to sit down and think about well how do I get these kind of jobs and um, at that time like postgraduate um, degrees at master's degrees PhDs were starting to become a bit more prominent Um, and I was like well I'm going to need one of these to be able to go and get a job like that so I think I started I rolled in a master's program but then pretty quickly that turned into a PhD a year later Um, and I never envisioned myself doing a PhD but you know, they were kind of like, you know, you've done a year. Do you want to count that towards your PhD? And, you know, I worked out I could finish by the time I was 25. So living at home still, I didn't really have any responsibilities or bills. So it seemed pretty <laughs> enticing, I guess. Um, and I was like, well, if I have a PhD, that's going to open lots of doors. So I may as well just do it. I've already started. And I think being young and naive, um, it just kind of happened, I guess. Uh, and next thing I knew, I had done a PhD. So from there, uh, I originally had planned, obviously, to go down, you know, high-performance sport, elite sport, something like that. But kind of doing my PhD in Cairns, there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity to work with elite sport up there. Um, And then I moved down to Brisbane a year before my PhD finished. But then my partner and I at the time were kind of like, oh, well, why don't we just open our own place? Because we kind of saw a place in the market um, a bit of a gap, I guess. In that, there were lots of gyms around, but there wasn't anything that was kind of specifically offering strengthening, conditioning services for athletes or general population, um, combined with like exercise physiology services, and then tailored specific uh, like group fitness or um, strengthening, conditioning for general pop. So, again, being not young and naive, you know, 25, I was like, yeah, I'll open a business. Why not? Um, <laughs> And then I just opened a business. So it kind of again just happened. It wasn't really a plan. Um, and then yeah, we've been open nearly six years now. So yeah, it's kind of like looking back on it all, I'm like, wow, I didn't know have did not have direction. Like this just if you had told me 10 years ago this is where I'd be, probably would have laughed at you because no way I was working in elite sport, you know. Um, but I'm kind of glad that I ended up where I did because I get best of both worlds really and then working at the university i get to work in the teaching side of things as well so it's kind of like having your cake and eating it too and all those kind of things like i just yeah i think i like where i ended up even though it's really not where i thought i would go if that makes sense
1: Mm, mm, it does it does definitely definitely no no i can uh i can uh um I can relate actually a, a fair bit. It's, it's definitely I've I've opened a business myself when I was pretty young and uh, and naive and you just like go in there full uh, steam ahead and uh, things sometimes just fall the way they do. Um, so you've got this business, you've got this uh, I guess you'd call it private sector strength conditioning facility. Um, and then uh, t- tell us tell us about it. Like, um, what what does it sort of cater to? Um clientele, you mentioned sort of exercise physiology, you mentioned the uh, um uh, the sort of general proper strength and addition. Tell tell us about that business and, and what it uh, looks like on a day-to-day front.
2: Yeah, so um uh, originally we kind of wanted to offer something that would cover all the gaps in the market that we saw. So we know that you know a lot of people enjoy group fitness, um, but you know, a lot of unfortunately, like a lot of group fitness classes out there aren't really Um, tailored specifically to individuals per se or you know um, scaling might sometimes not be an option for people in the class and we noticed that, that actually a lot of people were coming in especially kind of in their late 30s early 40s 50s and they you know suffered a lot of injuries from for whatever reason through their life and they were a bit nervous about kind of engaging in group fitness stuff but that's what they love so for us that was a big drive for us is to offer a like safe and welcoming environment where people knew that they were going to be looked after so even if you're in a class of you know 20 people yeah you're all doing the same workout but we tailor it very um like specifically for each individual so that if they have an injury or a condition they're looked after um and know that they kind of feel safe while doing it so that was a big drive for us Um, and you know being a strength conditioning coach I'm really big on making sure that people understand that strength conditioning isn't just for elite athletes because that people tend to think that Um, and you know we wanted to teach people that you know even though they weren't elite athletes you can still train like your own version of an athlete right so still pushing yourself like they do it's just obviously scaled to your caliber of needs so that was a big driver for us and then Uh, exercise physiology obviously working with the chronic conditions I don't do that because I'm not ex-phys but uh, my business partner is and so he works a lot with um, like Medicare uh, DBA clients as well as people with you know chronic lower back pain and things like that so a lot of our clients um, do exercise physiology sessions as well and then obviously in strength conditioning I'm more tailored to um, you know strength conditioning for elite sport or you know even from kids who are like five, six years old and then just learning how to move. Um, And, you know, the parents want to help them be better at their sport or whatever they come in for, Um, right up through to kind of more your national, international level athletes that come in. Um, And the best thing is, I think, about having your own business and being in the private sector a bit more is that you get a lot more opportunities to work with people from different sports and backgrounds. Um, Like, you know, I've got everyone from, a race car driver to like a netball player to a Australian volleyball. Like it's just so varied, which is really cool, I think, and keeps me on my toes a bit and makes it really interesting. And yeah, it's just really nice to have a few different kind of population groups, I guess, coming in through the gym. And at the end of the day, they're all doing some form of strength and conditioning, which is cool. Um, but obviously they've just got very different goals. But as practitioner, it's really cool because no day is ever the same. Um, The way in what like each day looks like at the gym is quite different as well. Uh, So we have about 30 odd classes a week. And so, you know, there might be three classes in the morning and three classes at night. And then we'll have individual clients kind of sprinkled throughout the week as well. Um, And depends on the week. Like it could be anywhere from 15 individual clients to 30 individual clients, like for each coach. Um, And it just depends on the load of coaching and classes as well that we kind of have on board. So it is, again, it's very different. Um, And then, you know, sometimes I might have school holiday camps that kind of come in and have sporting teams that come in. Um, I have swim squad that comes and trains with me during the school holidays as well. And then from that, some of those individual athletes then kind of come during the semester for their own individual sessions. So it's very fluid throughout the year, uh, which again is really cool. Like you don't really ever get bored because you're always doing something different. And yeah it's really cool I like that it's just so many different (laughs) things going on I guess so I'm not just not obviously not just sitting in office nine to five but I'm also not just doing the same class inside outside you know day in day out kind of thing as well
1: Mm, mm, yeah awesome awesome um yeah and I guess one of the the real benefits of uh uh, working in, in private S and or, or user payers, you kind of get to choose who you work with, and uh, you can have that wide variety of of uh, athlete populations you might work with, and, and you can learn a heck of a lot from from all of them. Um, you mentioned you just kind of jumped in, uh, jumped into the business. If you were, to, if you were to pass on some advice to, say, people, S and coaches thinking of starting their own business, whether it's bricks and mortar, um. Uh, specifically, I guess. What, what would be that advice? How, how would you go about opening up a, a strength conditioning business? If, if you had your time again, would it be exactly the same or would you do things a little bit differently?
2: Um, oh, I'm, a, I'm kind of going a foot in both kind of things that you said there because I think that opening it with so much naiveness and no understanding or clue really was kind of good because then I learned my own like, learnt from my own mistakes, my own obstacles, I learnt very quickly um, how to think on my feet, how to change things, how to understand that, you know, you can have the perfect plan, but you're probably going to end up doing plan B, C, D, E, F, you know, before you actually get to what you're going to do. And I think if I had been too organised or too structured before I started a business, I probably would have struggled a bit more to kind of deal with those obstacles. I think it as a person, like, it's definitely made me more, um, You know, kind of learn from being reactive to be more proactive through the years to stop these things from happening. But at the same time, like I would definitely recommend talking to as many different people who own businesses as possible. Um, At the time, I didn't really know anyone because I was young and I just didn't know anyone. Um, But definitely talking to people and learning from different experiences and just getting a little bit of an understanding of the things that you might need to know. Like, you know, when I first opened, I didn't even know what BAS was. Like, I had no idea about taxes and money and how to actually do the business side of things. I was like, oh, I'm a coach. I love coaching. I can do this. I'm good with the people. Let me open a business. Not actually understanding, you know, all the things you've got to think about, like marketing or how to work with cash flow or how to, recruit people or work with staff or you know wh- what finances I had to do I had no idea like I had a really great accountant and financial advisor on board who helped me with that stuff at the start but I also didn't go looking for them they were just people who were actually ex-clients that were like oh I actually really like your business idea do you want a hand so it kind of was just lucky that they were there um at the start to get things running because honestly I don't know if I would be open today if I didn't have them because they were people who understood that side of stuff. Um, they, you know, they my financial advisor was um worked for one of the big banks and he was just like on six months leave and just wanted a bit of a project and helped. So like that was really lucky. He was around. Um, and he obviously knew how to run a business. And then I just had to come in with the passion and the idea to kind of make it a gym business, if that makes sense. Um, and then, you know, had an accountant who taught me how to do taxes and BAS and GST and what all those things mean. Um, And again, like even simple things like financial projections, which, you know, sounds so boring, but at the start, like you need to have that stuff to have an idea of where you're going or what you need to put into action to make that happen. Because, you know, this is the reason I think a large, you know, number of gyms or new businesses fail. Like I think I've read a stat once, like a lot of businesses close in the first two years. And like, I totally get that because there are so many little things that can go wrong that could end up closing your business. And that's not even talking about dealing with things like COVID and pandemics. That's Mm -hmm. just, you know, everyday life. So yeah, there's, I definitely think talking to as many people as you can, getting ideas about what they've been through, what they've had to face um, and then working out how to best kind of use their situations to help you come up with your own um, version of where you're going to go and what you think is going to be troublesome for you, I guess. Um, and you know, I think one big thing for me as well is like, I see a lot of people open gyms or businesses and they want the biggest and fanciest places first with all the equipment and big space and whatever. But when you're first starting out, like, unless you're swimming in a bit cash, it's, it's hard to kind of put that amount of money in and then be chasing a tail because you've got to be sure that you can, pay those loans back or whatever it is you've done to get that money. Um, Whereas again, I was young and I was broke and I just went out and bought a couple of barbell bumper packages. And I was like, yep, I've got a gym now. And then Mm. I didn't want to do it with any debt or loans. So that's how I started. And then once I got a bit more money, I added some more stuff, got a bit more money, added some more stuff and then eventually my gym was fitted out. But, you know, that was over the course of a year that wasn't, oh, I'm going to open a you know, couple hundred thousand dollar places worth of equipment immediately because I just didn't want that stress, which I see quite often a lot of people do. So, you know, if you can afford it and it's not going to be stress to you, fantastic, go do it. But I think that's just an extra thing you have to worry about when you're already stressed about running a new business, you know? Um, so that's another big thing I kind of suggest to people as well.
1: Mm, for sure. For sure. And You've got, from the sounds of things, you've got like uh, um, the the model has this sort of small group, S and C, and there's also individual S and C sessions. Is that the sort of uh, obviously it might be the model that that works for you? Is that the sort of recommended model you'd say works well across the industry if you want to get into private S or what are the options that you think would really work uh, best yeah. for people getting into the field?
2: Yeah. So the big one of the big things that kind of drove us with the group fitness model to start is it's it's a good way to have that income coming in every single week. You know, if you've got 100, 150 members or whatever it is you've got um, on those memberships that are weekly paying or whatever it is that you decide, that's that money that's coming in. And then it's always there. That's like, we worked on building that up first because then we knew that that was going to be almost guaranteed money each week because, you know, they're on six or 12 months contracts. Um, the individual sessions they are going to come and go and you know you've got people I've got people that have trained with me for five years and I've got brand new people that started this week and it can be quite transient um, especially if you know individual sessions are that little bit more expensive so people can be a little bit more iffy about kind of signing up to do that or committing or whatever but the group fitness stuff like if I can make sure that all my bills and staff and whatever are paid with group fitness stuff all the extra individual sessions or holiday camps or the extra cream on the top that's just additional money like bonus money so I think for me like that worked really well um and you know also rent isn't cheap (laughs) like rent is really expensive Mm -hmm. it has been anyway so you know I needed to make sure that I was going to have something that was a minimum going to pay that rent um, and, you know, worked out how many members would I need to pay that rent. Okay, that's our first target. Let's go for that. And then anything after that was kind of, you know, money in our pockets type thing. So I think that if that is something that you think that you could offer or employee staff to offer, I think that's a really good way of getting some money incoming without, you know, allocating 40 of your personal hours every week to individual clients because that's also a really quick way to burn out as well if you're trying to pump through individual clients as your only source of income um and you'll probably struggle to pay a lot of bills by only doing that unless your session cost is quite high
1: mm, mm, for sure for sure i want to ask you about the uh, contracts you mentioned six 12 month uh contracts so um when a person comes in for those so uh, those group uh group sessions um they they sit down and say hey this is what this is the deal this is is say the 6 or 12 months this is how it's going to how much it cost it's weekly debit and then it runs from there how, how does that work
2: yeah so we have 6 or 12 month contracts but we also offer a no in contract as well so one of the biggest things like for opening this business was that we wanted it to be a welcoming community and uh like everyone would feel comfortable there and it's If you lock every single person into a contract, sometimes I think you end up getting people locked into things when they don't really want to be there. And yeah, cool. You've got their money. But if they're bringing in a vibe, that's not really fitting in with the vibe you're trying to have, then it's almost detrimental to be having their money because they don't want to be there. And like we've always really worked on this business being somewhere where people want to be there and it's a choice to be there because it just makes a better atmosphere. So Mm -hmm. from the get go, it was okay. Yes. We're going to have six or 12 month contracts and they're going to be a little bit cheaper because obviously you're locking into something, but that no locking contract, I think is a really good option because it doesn't like some people don't like that pressure of being locked into something. Some people are a bit, you know, non-committal or whatever. And to be honest, 80 to 90% of people that lock in, uh, don't lock in on the contract, sorry, they end up staying for years anyway. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's nice because they can leave anytime they want, but they're choosing to be there. So it just creates a better atmosphere. And then you also, you know, not having to deal with as many people that, you know, aren't happy about having to pay money to something they're not enjoying or whatever it may be. Uh, So I do think it's important to try and offer a few different options um so there are actual contracts but then we also offer like casual and 10-pack classes so if someone's only going to train one to two times a week they're better off just doing a 10-pack and then they just kind of purchase that as they require it and that's really good as well because we get a lot of people who are you know, um, runners or swimmers or whatever, they've, they've actually got a sport or whatever they might be doing that takes up a lot of their time, but they just want to come in for that little bit of extra strength addition to support whatever they're doing externally. So those one to two pack options are really good for the um, people each week because they're still ongoing customers, but they're not having to fork out an excessive amount of money for stuff that they're not utilising either. So that kind of creates a nice relationship with them as well.
1: Mm, for sure for sure what's the percentage difference between uh say this no lock-in or the say six months or 12 months
2: like as in how many people
1: no so so what what, what's the um difference in price between the two like percentage wise
2: percentage wise it's it's not a whole lot um yeah it's not a lot like it's a couple bucks a week like it's not that much um Our prices have just recently increased for the first time ever, (laughs) Um, which I wouldn't say is a great business decision, but COVID happened. Um, Yeah, it's not very much. It's probably like 10%, something like that. Might be a little bit different. Mm. But um, if they pay up front, they get a bigger discount again. So there's obviously, there's like honestly a different option for every person. I would say, like, if people complain about, oh, I'm locked into six months, I want to get out of it. I'm like, well, unfortunately, that's why a no-locking contract exists. So, yeah. majority of the time, they're pretty happy with what we offer. And realistically, when we're really not that expensive, we could probably be more expensive, but we kind of want to keep loyalty with our customers and stuff as well. Um, and at the end of the day, I think being not as cheap as you can be, but not rotting the system either works in our favor because then people stick around a lot longer, you know? Mm.
1: So, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was going to actually, that that brought up a question of mine, uh, just then the, so say increasing prices or, or setting prices. Um, mm. Obviously, you've got things like inflation, uh, all that type of stuff that that uh, goes up year by year. Is that something you, you might do year by year? Um, you might say, okay, prices will go from X to Y or you kept them the same and only increase them once? You just said, what, what's the philosophy there?
2: Yeah, so ours was a bit of a funny one because so we opened in 2018 and, you know, doing our financial projections, we're like, okay, when we get this many members, um, we're going to be able to hire someone to help. And then when we get to this many members, we can do this or whatever. And so we got to um, middle of 2019, end of 2019. And we like had reached that number that we needed to hire someone. And I was like, this is gonna be so great. And then covid Hit like literally the next week. So then we were closed for three months. And then we had another probably three months of just building back up to what our numbers were again. And then because obviously COVID hung hung around a bit, mm. we kept having closures all the time um, in Queensland and stuff. And we were just felt a bit nervous about putting any staff on. And then we also felt a bit nervous about increasing prices on people because you know, a lot of people were struggling for work or had lost their jobs or mm-hmm. you know had at work for six months or whatever it was. And so we kind of chose to maintain the prices for a little bit. Um, and to be honest, like we didn't really have a lot of increases in bills or anything like that. Like we didn't have any real hard pressing reason why we needed to increase everybody. Um, and then probably in the last year, we were like, okay, now we actually need to talk about increasing the prices. And we know that everywhere does it, but we're also a very close-knit community. Like we know every single member and their name and all the things. And it it was almost like you almost feel bad doing it. But then as a business owner, you're like, we've got to do it because, you know, it's it's been forever since anybody's had it. So we did increase it. I think we increased it by like 10 15% or something like that. Like it wasn't a lot. Um, but it was just just enough to kind of cover all those extra costs that we'd started incurring just with, you know, post-COVID things, inflation and whatnot. So my biggest thing is that when I open the business, like, yeah, it's it's nice to make money and I, I need to make money, obviously, off it, but I also don't want to take the Mickey out of people because sometimes, like, I know that exercise and gyms and these kind of things, they're leisures for a lot of people. They're things that, you know, if money starts to get tight. It could be the first thing they get rid of if it's too expensive. Mm. And if you make it too expensive, you get that high turnover of people, which we don't want either. So it's kind of, yeah, a bit of a balancing act, I would say.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. And then uh, the next question that I had in the back of my mind is um, staffing yeah, these projections on when you could bring on another, uh, another member of staff. How does that work? Is there a, like a formally use or, um, because that, that's, the, that's the ideal, right? Is you, you bring on staff to manage things so you can go out and uh, do more of the things that you want to do or um, generate more business, that type of thing. How do you decide when's the right time to, if, you, if you're an S&C coach, you, you're in business, how do you decide when's the right time to bring on another s coach to help you out with?
2: Yeah, I think it's really individual and I think it comes down to how you run your business and why you opened a business. Um, I know for me, like, I really like the coaching side of things like, yeah, I run the business and I own it, but I like coaching and talking to people and being involved in that. And I never wanted to be someone who opened a business, then hired a bunch of staff. And then I just disappeared off the floor. Um, Because especially like people are coming to us because we offered that next level of service, you know, with a little bit more education or experience perhaps than, um, you know, other gyms might offer and they, like us being personable and knowing them and being involved and I think that if you're a business owner who really has created your business to thrive in that kind of environment if you then go and hire a bunch of people and step away it loses that and I think over time it kind of loses the integrity a bit of what you set out to do so my, my plan wasn't ever to have a team of 10 and me take two classes a week and then be in an office or wherever um it it was very much like I wanted to be involved as much as I could while still running the business. And then, you know, now, luckily, I've kind of got to do some other things that I like. But I think it comes down to how much you still want to be involved, um, how much money you want to outlay to perhaps have other staff come on board as well. Like, what are you willing to kind of give up um, to have that happen? And, you know, if you get staff as well, like you need to be willing to invest the time in them. So if you don't have that time to invest in them, then I probably wouldn't go out hiring a whole bunch of people and then just being like, okay, go be a minion and work for me because then that's not going to create a very good environment for what you've created either. So I think you have to really think about it. Um, I think sometimes people do rush out and hire staff too quickly or, you know, they rush into hiring people who may not be a correct fit for their business as well. And if you run a small business in the private sector, especially like you have to have your own difference. And if you know you've created your business to be different in this way, and then you get a bunch of people that come on board that maybe might not fit that, then it's going to kind of damage what you've built. So I think sometimes just holding off a bit can be, you know, a good thing as well.
1: Mm-hmm, for sure. You mentioned you mentioned the right fit. Um obviously it's a it's a consideration with any person starting a, a business venture, whether to bring on a partner in that business venture. Um, I believe you've, you've got a partner in the in the business venture. Um, wh- how, uh, what recommendations or advice would you give to people that are like ST coaches that are weighing up? Oh man, should I do this on my own? Should I uh, go in there with somebody else? What? And uh, if so, how do you pick that person?
2: Yeah. So I opened mine with my partner at the time and, I mean, I guess it's not lucky, but we've been, I guess, fortunate in that we've been able to separate totally amicably and run the business totally fine, like nothing had changed. Um, I know a lot of people who have opened um, businesses with their wives or husbands whatever, and it's ended in total shamozzle and the business is shut down. So (laughs) I think if you're going to open with the party, you need to be really aware of, you know, if something did happen, could down the line like if we decided we no longer were together and this includes a like an investor or a business partner as well you need to have those backup plans of okay if we if the relationship crumbles or fails for whatever reason what are we going to do and how is the business going to survive through that um you know for some people closing the business is you know what they choose to do and that's cool but for me i'm like you know i worked really hard to get a business so I, you know, we did what we had to do to make the business work. And to be honest, like it's probably better than ever, but I think you really need to have those backup plans ready because things happen in life and life happens. And yeah, even if you have someone who is an investor or, you know, someone who even just has money in your business and they might be a silent partner, you need to really consider that before you sign on with someone because at the end of the day, like, even if they're a silent partner, they've still got money in your business. And if something goes sour, you need to be able to, you know, work out how you're going to control that situation. And yeah, I think it's it's a big call. Like whoever you go into business with, you've got to you've got to trust them. And you've got to also trust that if something was to go wrong, you could both work it out okay as well. Um, but then in saying that, it's very, very hard to open a business on your own completely as well. So yeah, I think. It, it is good to open with someone but make sure that you know who that person is and trust them because the business will become a massive part of your life and at the end of the day like a lot of the time it's it's your income as well so if you have a mortgage or whatever big bills you need you need to make sure that you're going to be able to pay them and hopefully without stress you know mm,
1: mm, for sure for sure um next one next one I have for you uh, you mentioned cash flow you mentioned marketing and it's probably the the two things that uh, I'd say most uh, strength and conditioning coaches probably have, have, haven't encountered before, um, if, if they're working in as an employee, working for a club, a team, something like that. So, uh, for an SSE coach, he's in a he's in a uh, maybe um, working in a um, full time employment role, thinking of branching out, going into a business, um, opening a gym, an SSC gym, something like that. What would you say they need to know about cash flow for one and then marketing for two?
2: (laughs) Um, Again, when I was younger and naive, I had no idea about any of these things. Um, It's just stuff that I've learned along the way. I think you need to do a really big um, Excel spreadsheet at the start to work out all the costs that you're going to incur and when they're going to incur and what they are now and what they could potentially go up by, you need to make sure that you have buffers in place so that you don't end up, um, you know, in the red. I Like a big goal of mine was to never have a week in red. And luckily I've done that. Like I've made money every single week since I opened. But that's also because I didn't go outside my scope of monetary value either. So this is what I was kind of saying before, like not going and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on equipment if you don't have that money because, you know, it, it can be very, very stressful making sure that enough money is coming in if you've got big bills. So for, for me at the moment, like my big payments, you know, I, I've got rent every week, obviously have electricity. And then I purchase equipment maybe one to two times a year. And it isn't like I go and purchase an entire gym full of new equipment. I do an audit, I have a look at what needs replacing and I do that. I don't go and get stuff that realistically I probably don't need. Um, and as my gym grew, and I had more people coming in, that's as, that's what I did in terms of buying equipment. So I, I grew the equipment as my people grew, I guess, um, and understanding the different bills that can kind of come your way. Like, I think a lot of people don't think about things like, you know, business insurance or, um, marketing, if that's something that you're going to pump a lot of money into, um, Marketing wise, honestly, I can say I haven't really ever marketed, (laughs) which is probably a really terrible thing to say as a business owner, but haven't ever really felt a big need to, I guess, because we've always been so busy with people coming in the door. But in saying that, I think our biggest marketing strategy is word of mouth. And that comes from the rapport and relationship building that we've built with the community. And I think that that is one of the best, if not the best form of marketing because people trust what their friends and family say more than what a paid Instagram ad does um, kind of offer them. So that was always my big thing is like, you know, if we put energy and focus into creating good relationships with clients, then that's going to pay off tenfold because they're going to tell their friends and family who are going to tell their friends and family. And so majority of people that come in the door are referrals for us, I'd say 90% of people. Um, and I've never had to pay a cent for that marketing. So you know, I, I know that a lot of people will go and spend thousands of dollars on social media marketing and all that kind of stuff. And that stuff can be really great, but you know, what's better than free marketing that works. Um, and I guess I, I don't want to say it's lucky because I do believe that being genuine and being a good person helps. In marketing as well, because, you know, your clients are going to believe in what you're selling them, I guess, um, and they're going to trust you. So then they're going to tell their friends, hey, go to this person. They're really good. They do X, Y, Z for me. And sometimes just going a little bit out of your way to help somebody will bring another five people through the door. So I think that's kind of my biggest thing is just be like a genuine good person who's actually there and willing to help and create rapport and relationships with people. And that's your best marketing asset you've got. Is you know just being being you <laughs> and being good at what you do.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, very true, very true, and I can totally relate to that equipment uh, uh, piece of advice you you gave. Uh, I think when I opened up my shop, I I went out and bought like Leco bars and Leco bumpers and things like that. <laughs> I was like, yeah, people are going to love this. The only people that actually loved it were that were other like S coaches that actually came in, and said, oh, you got a Leco. But all the actual people that were paying for servicing there, they didn't give a rat's about it. Um, it was just a bar and a, a plate they could uh, they could drop. Um, so that, no. that <laughs> definitely uh, definitely uh, rang true to me there. Hey, um, so you, you've got a business, you've had a business now for uh, say six years, you were saying? Yeah. Imagine there's been a, a few stressful times there. Um, how do you? How do you manage adversity as your own boss and uh, that does pop up and avoid sort of getting burnt out from working day in, day out in the business?
2: Yeah, good question. Um, I've been tired for six years. (laughs) Um, I joke, but also kind of true. Uh, I mean, when it comes to adversity, what bigger adversity exists than COVID and a pandemic um, closing down your business? That was interesting. Um, I think adversity-wise, and this what I was, I kind of mentioned this before about, you know, learning to just go with the flow and have backup plans galore. And I think when that came to COVID, that kind of really helped me get through that because, you know, Prime Minister said you're closed tomorrow. And I was like, oh my goodness. And, and then it was suddenly, oh, you might be closed for six months. And I've gone, all right, I've got to somehow get through this. And within 24 hours, we had given out every piece of equipment in the entire gym to people like members. Um, I had to create waivers for them to essentially borrow and um, loan out the equipment to make sure it all was gonna come back. Had to work out, okay, let's get the entire class timetable online onto Zoom so we can still offer a service. Then it came to decision-making. It's like, well, do we just keep them at the same prices and give them equipment? Do we charge them for equipment? how are we going to offer this? And then we decided, well, long-term, if we decrease our prices for these guys during the online services, you know, we're helping them out while they're going through a hard time. They're helping us out by still paying membership. And then they're going to stay on board and be with us you know, in six months time or whatever it was going to be. And I think that really helped us as well as making decisions like that. Like sometimes you have to make those high decisions, which in the short term might seem like you know it's hurting you a bit because we were getting less money but at the end of the day every single one of those people so I'm talking like over 100 plus people every single one of them was still a member after the pandemic because you know they'd paid through the whole time they kept us alive we were able to still be open I guess when the pandemic kind of seized a bit which a lot of gyms unfortunately didn't have the luxury of um And so, yeah, you know, just learning to pivot and make decisions and understanding that sometimes you just got to risk it. Like just what is the most low risk um, kind of decision you can make that's still going to benefit you in a way, I guess, even though they might be terrible (laughs) choices. Um, I think and being okay with that and understanding that, you know, I might have to take a little bit of a loss for a little bit, but in the long term, it's going to be a lot better of a game. Um, so yeah, just learning to go with the flow, I think, and being a little bit flexible. So have a plan, but be flexible in your plan, I think is a big thing. Um, what was the second question? Sorry, I forgot.
1: I was just, it was just about avoiding, uh, sort of avoiding burnout and also managing the adversity that comes with running your own business.
2: Yeah. So when you run your own business, you got to be prepared to put in an absolute bucket load of hours. Like when people say, it's a lot of hours. I. It's almost like sometimes I don't think people understand how many hours unless they've run a business themselves. Um, and obviously owning a gym, they're not nine to five hours. Like people want to train at 5am in the morning. People want to be training at like 6.30 at night. Like it's these big split shift days. And then if you're owning the business, people always say to me, oh, what do you do between like the classes you teach or the clients you coach or whatever? Like, do you just exercise and like nap and stuff? Oh, I wish I was exercising and napping between like, you know, I might work from 5am in the morning to 10 or 11 in the morning at the gym. Then I kind of have a bit of a gap until maybe three and then I'm back maybe from three to seven. And so suddenly you've got, you know, a five hours or six hours in the morning and then maybe another four hours a night. So you're already at like nine, 10 hours, maybe just then. And that's not even doing running the business stuff. That's not doing your admin or your marketing or your emails or your accounts or whatever it is. So then that's got to fit in somewhere. And so I think people really do not understand when you first open a business, like, unless you're paying someone to do that, which I don't always think is the smartest option, unless you actually have the money to do that. um, It it is a lot of hours and hundred percent, you can end up being burnt out if you're not careful. So like, especially for us because we weren't a franchise or anything like that. We were our own thing. So we had to work a little bit harder to get a lot of that money coming in. I guess at the start, you end up doing things like answering messages on a Sunday from some random person on Facebook inquiring about your gym. And at the start, I feel like you almost need to do that because you're trying to grow and you're trying to get a good reputation and you're trying to get people through the door. But then once you kind of get to a point where you can feel like you've it's stable enough, I think you really have to try and create boundaries. So the past couple of years, like I once I finish on a Saturday morning or whatever it is, like I am off work. I don't touch it until Monday morning again. And yes, there's messages coming in my phone, there's emails, all sorts of things, but you have to be really strict in creating those boundaries for yourself because realistically like work is always on for you and you really need to take time to step back and get away from that because you will be burnt out and the thing with burnout is it's almost like you don't really know what's happening until it's happened and then you're already in that stage and then you've got to deal with it and get back out of it um especially like with hours you know you're getting up early you know you might finish at seven thirty at a night get home time to eat, shower, dinner, put yourself to bed at nine and then you got to get up at 4.30 to go again. Speaking from experience, if you do that for years, like you get really tired. And a big thing for me as well is I like to bring the energy to my coaching sessions. And, you know, you're there to motivate people. And if you're coming in and you're tired, you're only really being detrimental to your business anyway. So taking that time away then actually revitalizes you and gives you that energy I guess to put back into the business which is then going to go full circle and it's going to be better so yeah boundaries is a massive one and I know it can be really hard and it's like if you're your own business owner you feel like if you're not working you're wasting time but honestly like you need to take the time away from it and have your own thing and have your own space and things that aren't work related because yeah you just you will burn out and it will show through your business whether you realize it or not
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's some sage advice. And, and I'd say it relates not just to uh, business owners, but also full-time employees as well. Uh, Absolutely. Hey, things, if you had your time again, would you do anything differently?
2: Um, hard to say, because I'm very much a person of like a firm belief that like even all your mistakes or regrets or whatever you might have, it kind of shapes who you are today. And I kind of like the mistakes and learnings I've had along the way because then moving forward, it makes me more wise. (laughs) Um, So I don't really think I'd ever like to change the way I did anything um, because then I wouldn't have learned from it, I guess, if that makes sense. Um, Oh, yeah. And, And that's the thing. Like, I just feel like my business has organically grown from the learnings and the mistakes and the things that have happened. So I, I honestly, I don't think I really would change anything. Um, Yeah. I think I'm pretty happy with how it's gone.
1: <laughs> awesome. Awesome. What's been the biggest learning?
2: Oh gosh. The biggest learning is how many hours it takes to run a business. <laughs> um, Yeah. I think learning for me almost is like, I'm usually such a, bubbly friendly person and I really struggle with confrontation and dealing with uncomfortable situations like that or you know even something as simple as someone's payment bouncing used to make me so uncomfortable and I'm like this person would literally owe me money and I would be like hey I'm really sorry like do you mind if we just have a chat um you just owe me some money and it would always be like I feel bad for asking them and I think that that has made me grow as a person like I'm not I'm not a savage business owner by any means but i think i've gotten a lot stronger in learning to stand my ground and be able to maintain respectful kind of um client and coach relationships or business owner relationships and learning how to deal with these confrontational situations because like i don't mind talking to people but you know my money is such a contentious issue and it is um yeah Scary, but I think I've, I've learned and grown from those kind of situations a lot, for sure.
1: Awesome, awesome, awesome. Hey, yeah, uh, some great business advice. especially just for anybody considering, or even in private sector to see at the moment. Hey, swinging back, swinging back to your PhD. What was that on, and and what did uh, what 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 came out of it?
2: Uh, so it was titled "Seasonal Variations of Fitness in Male and Female Soccer Players in the Tropic." So long title, but basically it was about looking at strength and conditioning um, in soccer players, the so sub-elite soccer players, and you know whether it was useful in maintaining or improving their fitness throughout the season. But then it actually turned into a lot about um, its utilization in preventing the um, rate and severity of injuries in soccer players in Australia, because You know, a lot of um, soccer teams and that kind of thing really love using small-sided games for fitness, um, you know, like a lot of the European or South American teams do. Um, But my big thing was, you know, are we working at a high enough intensity or capacity to kind of make using those small-sided games worthwhile for our fitness? And, you know, I was doing this PhD, it was like 11 years ago now. Um, And strength conditioning wasn't massive in soccer, really, in Australia at that time, especially in Cairns, like it was non-existent. And a lot of the boys in the team had never even done, you know, squats, let alone weighted anything. So it was really interesting in just doing some really basic, you know, like FIFA 11 plus based strength conditioning work on the field. And, you know, I was able to kind of show that 10 to 15 minutes twice a week was decreasing the severity and number of their injuries, um, which was really cool. And so even though they hated it and the coaches were sometimes like, well, why aren't we using the ball? This is stupid. But I'm like, you know, you're getting less severe injuries. Like we're not getting as many ACLs. We're not getting as many hamstring and groin um, strains. And if they do get them, then it might be take them out for one to two weeks instead of six to eight. And so that was really cool. Um, And then a sidebar of all of that was... You know learning how to use strength and conditioning with you know maybe lower level teams um, or coaches that weren't really that keen on strength and conditioning and just coming up with some different kind of tactics, I guess, to kind of sell it as something that was actually going to be useful to them instead of a waste of their time. Because you know, I'm sure a lot of strength conditioning coaches out there have worked with athletes or coaches or whoever who are quite resistant to what they're doing, even though we know it's really useful. Soccer players, you know, and I'm sure a lot of other sports as well, they just want to play with the ball. They don't want to be doing squats or sprints or whatever you got them doing. They just want to play with the ball. And like to me, in my head I, at the time, I was like, you know, but on, on the pitch, you know, you might play 90 minutes, but you might only actually have the ball at your feet five to 10% of the time. And for me, I'm like, that's just so simple. Like, why would you not want to train without the ball? Because majority of the time you don't have it. But to them, it's like, no, 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 no. I need the ball at all times. And it was just, yeah, it was really interesting for me, especially as a young, um, I guess, female strength conditioning coach as well with working with a bunch of males. Like it was so eye-opening in me having to not only try and get a PhD done and do this stuff with them, but also having to face that resistance from coaches. I think it gave me a lot of um strategies that I still use today in working with people who might be a little bit resistant to what you're kind of doing as well so yeah it's it kind of like all PhDs I guess kind of started out as one thing and then ended up being something kind of completely different but you know again it's all about the learnings and what you take away from it as well
1: for sure for sure hey Sarah Matt absolutely awesome discussion uh really appreciate your time and and, uh um uh, openness and and sort of sharing what you're doing and the sort of private cpsnc Uh, and really interesting about the phd as well i want to wrap this up i'll start to wrap this up just with a couple of uh, quick questions and uh, you can answer this in a very brief format or in, in long uh discourse it's up to you um first one though first one is what what are you going to be most excited about developing um whether it's professional development or in your business what what have you uh, or learning in the next sort of year
2: Uh, i think a big thing for me um one thing is like i want to get my mentor links kind of going a bit more um now i'm a little bit older and i don't want to say wiser but (laughs) a bit more aware um and more confident in approaching people and learning from them. I think like, that's a really big thing that I want to kind of continue to do. Um, And now I guess I kind of feel like I might be able to offer something to other people as well. Uh, So, you know, getting people um, like mentees, myself has been a big thing for me, but then on, you know, my kind of education hat side of things, like I would love to get back into some research or something in the next year or so. So, Hopefully, somehow I can juggle and put that back into my regime somehow. That's something I'd really like to do.
1: Awesome. Awesome. What what type of research are you interested in?
2: Honestly, more, like...
1: More uh, soccer in the tropics or, or what's it <laughs> going to look like?
2: Well, I'm kind of, what am I now? I'm in Brisbane, probably not as tropical as Cairns was. Um, honestly, I think from my own learnings, I'd really like to do some research into coach burnout and how to kind of prevent that and help other coaches you know not have to battle those things as much i think that's something that you know probably needs a bit more focus on um because i like i personally know a lot of coaches that don't you know are no longer in the industry because they just couldn't do the hours and the time required i know it's something that a lot of people struggle with especially if they're juggling you know contracts if they're part-time here and part-time there it's it's you know it's full on so yeah i think kind of doing some more research into that side of things is something I'd really like to do.
1: Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. Hey, yeah, uh, there's a bookshelf behind you and on the <laughs> video recording anyway for the listeners. What's um, any books or courses you recommend for SC coaches?
2: Yeah. Um. I know it's a really popular one, but Atomic Habits is really good by James Clear. Um, I think he offers a lot of insights Um, I think for business owners, Tools of um, Titans is really good as well. Um, It's a big one, but it has a lot of different learnings in there from, you know, different successful people, I guess, around the globe. Um, Otherwise, I I actually really like Shoe Dog as well. Um, I was just having a look at my bookshelf. Shoe Dog was cool because that – you know, Nike is like one of the biggest businesses in the world, right, and the most successful. So looking at how that came from, you know, someone having one idea and then turn into something else and then suddenly it's this multi-billion-dollar company. Um, I think that's really cool as well. So reading reading any books that are kind of by other business owners or about how businesses kind of came to fruition is really cool, even if it's not in your industry. Uh, I think there's a lot of learnings in those as well.
1: Hmm. Hey, Tools of the Titans, Tim Ferriss. What was the uh, biggest thing you got out of that oh, it Was the that, number one lesson
2: <laughs> that there's not just one way to do things. I think that sometimes people get stuck in like, oh, but this is what you need to do, and these are the boxes I need to tick. Like, yes, to an extent, but you got to be fluid, and you, it, you know, it's going to come off in like twenty different ways, and people are going to do things in different ways, and they're going to be as successful as each other. So this is what I was saying about talking to so many different people with different experiences is that you take little bits from everybody and you kind of make it your own and then you have your own stuff in there as well. So yeah, that there's, there's not just one way to do things. I think is a big takeaway for me.
1: Mm-hmm. Cool. 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 Awesome. Sarah. Hey, for people that are interested, uh, interested in journal, interested in say your research and, and what you're doing right now, how do they get more information?
2: Um, So my Instagram is probably a pretty good, way to get in touch uh so it's phd says so s-e-z and also have a twitter so Sarah Herbert 10 as well um if you reach out to me on either of those i'm pretty good at responding um being a business owner you have your phone stuck to your hand all the time <laughs> so yeah reach out i'd be happy to have a chat to anybody who wants to ask some more questions
1: yeah awesome and for your research do you have like a research gate or is there uh you know if you I can do. go and have a look at that
2: yeah, I do, but it's not reactive because I haven't researched in a while. So I've been too busy businessing and uh, um, teaching at uni. Um but yeah, I, I do have a research gate. Um, but yeah, honestly, it's not super active. So you can look at it, but it's not too much exciting stuff on there at the moment.
1: Yeah, cool, cool, cool. Um and business, Jim, uh have a website, people can check it out after listening to this and see what seeing what you're up to. What, yeah. what's, what's it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, Foundations Performance and Rehab is the name of the business. And if you just look that up on Instagram or Facebook, um, or just Google it foundationsperformance.com.au, um, you'll find information there, or you can contact me through there as well.
1: Awesome, Sarah. Hey, wonderful discussion. And I'm sure there's a lot of stuff people can take out of that uh, that are considering getting into the private sector SCC that are doing private sector SNC right now. Uh, so, thank you so much for your time this evening.
2: Thank you for having me. It's been a good chat.
0: Hey! So, before we get out of here, got to say thanks again to our partners at AlphaFit for supporting this show, this podcast, and the SNC community. Also, have to mention the ASCA conference again. Wonderful speakers, great networking opportunities, awesome research on display. November second to fourth, Gold Coast JW Marriott Hotel. Please check it out. Going to be a great event. And lastly, that's another one of our episodes done and dusted. Until our next one, I'm Joseph Coyne, and this is the ACA Podcast.